earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part 14 in our Acts of the Resurrection Life series. If you missed any parts, the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Our title today, Thinking Outside the Box, brings us to Acts 17 as we continue our thematic journey through Acts. Remember, we're tracing the manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit in the day-to-day lives and ministry of Jesus' followers. But before we hit chapter 17, back in 2004, Athens, Greece, commanded the attention of virtually the entire modern world. It was the Olympics. Friends, this is one part of my Greek heritage I can be proud of, I guess. The Greeks were fanatical about the human body, symmetry, and athletics, so they gave the world the Greek Games, which eventually became the Olympic Games. Well, Let's go back further to around 63 AD. What was the attraction of Athens in these early years that commanded the attention of the ancient world? Even before the Apostle Paul came on the scene. It was the golden age of Greek history, the 5th century BC, and Athens was the center of Greek art, architecture, literature, politics, and philosophy. For centuries, Athens remained supreme culturally and intellectually, being the seedbed for such notable thinkers as Socrates, Plato, Zeno, Epicurus, and Aristotle. And prior to this, in the 6th century BC, Athens became the world's first great experiment in democratic government. But early in the 5th century BC, the Persians destroyed it. It was rebuilt, though, during the administration of Pericles, Athenian statesman and general, becoming an architectural wonder. That latter part of the 5th century was designated the Age of Pericles, a period of great commercial, intellectual, and artistic achievement. Athens became the historic cradle of Greek civilization and culture, the premier university town of the Greco-Roman world, attracting intellectuals from near and far. Its religious makeup was pluralistic, with many gods and goddesses. In fact, it's where the Greek word pantheon originated, pan meaning all and theon meaning gods. The Pantheon was actually a temple dedicated to all Greek gods. Our English word pantheism comes from this word, meaning belief in many gods or that everything or all is God. Sound familiar? In Greek mythology, Pan was the name of the mythological god of fields, forests, wild animals, flocks, and shepherds. Pan is often pictured with the legs, horns, and ears of a goat. 
Pan became the root of many English words like Pan-American, Panacea, meaning healing many or all diseases, Pan-chromatic film, film sensitive to light of all colors, Pandemic, a word that's become all too familiar these days, referring to a disease that affects many or all people. Pandemonium, actually meaning all demons, and the root of the expression, all hell breaks loose. In Milton's Paradise Lost, pandemonium was the capital of hell. Or how about Pandora, as in Pandora's box? In Greek mythology, Pandora was the first mortal woman who, out of curiosity, opened a box and let all human ills into the world. Friends, have you ever said or heard someone say, let's not open Pandora's box? When we say this, we generally mean let's not create a more complex situation that'll bring additional problems or pitfalls. Well, friends, after the Apostle Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, turned his life over to the true gospel, and became a missionary, sharing his messianic faith with the Gentile pagan world, he finds himself in Athens, a hub of paganism, littered with idols and statues to a myriad of gods and goddesses like Athena, likely the most popular female deity and the patron goddess of Athens, with many temples and edifices dedicated to her. In fact, historians suggest that Athena, goddess of wisdom, is where Athens got its name. Friends, you've probably heard of some of the deities of the pantheon of Greek gods, Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, Nike, Eros, Pluto, or Hades, the god who rules over the lower world. How about Poseidon, the god of the sea and horses? Yep, that's where the Poseidon adventure got its name. Well, Athens had two primary high peaks and a lower area where the main city was built. The lower peak was a rocky hill area, and it was nicknamed the Areopagus, meaning Hill of Ares, the Greek god of war, corresponds to Mars, the Roman god of war. This Areopagus, or Mars Hill, was where the ruling council of Athens convened its meetings as the city's governing body. You may recall Paul gave his sermon-like speech to the Greek philosophers in chapter 17, our chapter for today. Yet it was not likely during an officially convened meeting, but rather an informal gathering of various philosophers, including Stoics and Epicureans, who often met to dialogue and debate various issues. So, friends, our key question becomes, just how did the Holy Spirit direct the Apostle Paul so that he found himself in Athens? Well, let's find out. Now, the full account is in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. So please read this entire section. It's fascinating. I'll highlight several verses here. But before I do... Imagine the Holy Spirit being likened to a spiritual travel agent. He maps out the itineraries of the early followers of Jesus, and this became true of Paul and his troop. The Holy Spirit chooses the very best-case scenarios so they and we will be in the right place at the right time to meet just the right people. Friends, it's usually a good idea to let the Holy Spirit take charge, because he sees the big picture. 
How many times have we come to realize that he knows what's best and that his job is to prepare the way? Well, he does just that in the missionary activity of Paul, who now becomes the dominant figure in chapter 17 through the end of Acts. Chapter 16 closes out with Paul and Silas being begged to leave Philippi because the officials learned that they were Roman citizens and that they made a big mistake throwing them into prison. Not wanting them to make a fuss, they begged them to move on. But before moving on, they made a pit stop at Lydia's house where they encouraged the new and growing believers. Then they went to Thessalonica and reasoned in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. Some Jews and God-fearing Greeks believed their message. Other Jews were enraged and rioted, but some believers stole them away at night and whisked them off to Berea, where they led some to the Lord. But the Thessalonian troublemakers learned they were in Berea, so they traveled there to agitate the crowds. The believers immediately sent Paul off to Athens, and Silas and Timothy met up with him later. And this is precisely where we pick up the story, in chapter 17, verse 16. Now listen carefully, friends. Let's be keenly aware of how the providential direction of the Holy Spirit leads Paul to communicate the gospel in a particular way, a way different from how he traditionally communicated with Jews and proselytes. Let's remember now, the gospel was first presented to full Jews, then to Samaritans, who were half-Jews, then to the God-fearing Gentiles, proselytes who learned about and embraced some Jewish beliefs. But now, finally, full-blown pagans. So 17.16 begins, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy. In Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. The original New Testament Greek reads, The spirit of him was aroused or provoked within him. This word for aroused or provoked is a strong word. It means to incite, to stimulate, arouse, provoke. It's used both positively and negatively. Hebrews 10.24 is a positive use. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The negative use would refer to inciting or provoking someone to become angry or irritated. My take is that here in Acts, it's meant to communicate that the Holy Spirit is arousing a righteous anger due to the city being full of idols. So Paul is grieving over their lostness and their need of salvation. Additionally, this little word full packs a punch. It carries the idea of being utterly idolatrous. In other words, fully given over to idols. Friends, this tells me Paul was not only aware of the power of the Holy Spirit, but also sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Paul's spiritual antenna were up. He not only appropriates the Spirit's power, but discerns the Spirit's voice. The Spirit provoked him while he was doing what? Observing the city, full of idols. Now, friends, observing is also a rich and vibrant word. It means to look intently with interest for a purpose, and it includes the careful observation of details. This drove me to think of some pertinent questions, ones that build on each other, like, do we observe the people and situations around us in our various spheres of influence or circles of relationships? 
do we look at their lives and life situations with interest and for a purpose? Do we carefully observe the details of their lives or life situations for the express purpose of seeing how we might plant or water a seed for the sake of the gospel? Well, the story continues. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Notice Paul's consistent pattern. Jews first, proselytes second, and lastly garden-variety pagans in the street in the marketplace. Verses 18 through 21 then say, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, Paul. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, ding, 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 where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is? You are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Friends, Athens was home to two main rivaling philosophical systems of thought, entrenched in Greek society for over 300 years. The Epicureans basically believed that human life came into existence by chance. They saw no purpose or design for life, or even moral absolutes. Sound familiar? To them, a personal providential God who affected people's lives did not exist. For them, the goal in life was to pursue tranquility and happiness, free from pain and suffering, even religious superstitions and fears. Epicureans shunned idol worship, criticizing it as an irrational offering of sacrifices to gods who are neither personal nor providential. Impersonal gods cannot bring personal happiness. Epicureans in today's world are the refined in society, the connoisseurs, if you will, of the finer things in life. They might live in the snooty section of town and promote enjoying moderate pleasures and the serene life. Their slogan would be, Pleasure is the chief end of life. Conversely, the Stoics believed in a world soul, that the universe was actually a living organism. Sound familiar? Stoics promoted living harmoniously with nature, or the cosmos. They may even have been the originators of cosmic consciousness. Today, the Stoics would be equated with religious pantheists. For the Stoics... God is not transcendent, but in all things. In effect, God and the cosmos are one. Interestingly, the Stokes were also the hard rationalists of their day, given to analytical observations and careful reasonings, because they believed that this cosmic consciousness was absolute reason, and so much so that one could not have a personal relationship. While they believed in a nebulous cosmic creator, they also believed in the self-sufficiency of the human being, and that this so-called impersonal force had no interest in people's daily lives. Their slogan would be, Life is what we make it. 
friends, these two philosophical systems represented all there was to offer a typical Gentile pagan in the first century in dealing with the plight of humanity and coming to terms with life apart from the revelation of God's salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ, characterized by the Greek word zoe, or life that we see in the New Testament. This word means life that is not only duration or eternality, but dimension. In other words, a new dimension of existence for the here and now, unlike the absentee or uncaring God of the Epicureans and Stoics. Well, friends, let's continue at verse 22. And please remember, what we're about to experience is Paul's gospel presentation to these pagan Greek philosophers. He presents the one true God to these pagans, many of whom had been steeped in the idea of a pantheon of gods. Verses 22 and 23 say, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, friends, let's pause here for a moment, because I don't want us to retroject back into this first century scenario our modern understanding of two words. The first is religious. Today, we evangelicals tend to view this as a negative term, and in some t someone being religious, but not having a real relationship with Jesus. But Paul is actually complimenting them on their sincere respect for things divine, which he intends to elaborate on. And second, ignorant, which we also tend to attach a negative characterization. Interestingly, this is where we get our English word agnostic. So Paul is not calling the pagans ignoramuses, but rather acknowledging that they just don't know. So he's going to bring them up to speed. Now, friends, from the end of verse 23 to verse 31, we witness a stark change in how Paul makes his gospel presentation to non-Jews. I'd like to suggest you put a bookmark here or highlight this portion in some way. These nine verses provide us with an incredible template for sharing our faith with non-believers. Please, please read this section carefully. I'll highlight some key verses. But before I do, I want to call your attention to a few facts. First, Paul did not say, you must be born again, like Jesus did to Nicodemus. Second, Paul did not say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, like Jesus did to his fellow Jews at the very start of his ministry. And third, Paul did not say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, like he previously said to the Philippian jailer. Friends, we'll notice that there are no references to a Messiah here, no direct quotes of Hebrew scriptures, and no distinctively Jewish terminology to make his defense. In fact, we'll see that Paul is careful to use the secular pagan Greek word for God in his opening statement in verse 24. And let me just say here, friends, because in some circles there is an aversion to using the quote-unquote Greek words for God and Jesus. But the fact is that the early Christians lifted these words out of their Greek cultural toolbox and elevated them to mean the one true God and the one true Savior. These terms are now infused with a gospel meaning they didn't have before. 
And by the way, even though Paul did not directly quote his Hebrew scriptures between verses 24 and 31, he manages to slip in allusions to at least 30 Old Testament texts, like from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and the Psalms, demonstrating his Messianic Jewish perspective and worldview. That'd be a fun exercise, though, wouldn't it? Fishing out all those places in the Old Testament? Paul intelligently and subtly challenged the Greek pagan philosophers with their polytheistic, pantheistic, and dualistic worldviews of the day. The beauty here, friends, is that under the power and prompting of the Holy Spirit, Paul was enabled to think outside the box of his own Messianic Judaism, So let's pick a few key places where he engages these Gnostic-influenced Greek philosophers and see what we can learn from his approach. Verse 24 and following. Here's Paul's sermon opener. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Skip down to verse 28 and following. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul just quoted from a Greek Cretan philosopher and a Roman Stoic philosopher. What does this say to us in terms of learning what unbelievers believe and being able to engage them on their own turf? Verse 30 and following. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Remember now, Paul's not being disrespectful. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Notice, friends, some believed on the spot, but others wanted more time to think about what Paul taught. Do we allow for these possibilities as well? Or do we just want to rush people into making a decision? Well, friends, the instruction and challenges that Acts 17 presents to us as Christ followers living in our modern secular world environment are these. Like Paul, who took interest in and familiarized himself with his culture's objects of worship, how willing are we to do the same? And do do it, it to equip ourselves to find common ground in order to communicate the essence of the gospel to our own culture intelligently and lovingly. Like Paul, who was already knowledgeable about the literature of the day so he could use it as part of his message, remember, he quoted from two pagan poets, how willing are we to familiarize ourselves with our own culture's literary influences? And not just books people are reading, how about the shows people are watching on TV, or movies, radio programs, magazines? Can we present reasoned, intelligent arguments for our faith that challenge the prevailing worldviews in our culture? Friends, remember 1 Peter 3.15, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. 
And, like Paul, who knew the scripture so well that his thought patterns and conversations naturally mirrored biblical concepts, how willing are we to make reading and studying the scriptures a priority in our lives so we can engage people in natural conversations and reflect in those conversations a biblical worldview? Friends, like Paul, are we capable of thinking outside the box of our own Christianese ways of talking and outside of our in-house expressions? How good are we in knowing the language of our culture, feeling the pulse of our culture? With the way our culture is going, friends, it's becoming more of a necessity that we break out of our customary mold and begin thinking outside the box. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear what this program means to you. A listener recently commented on part 12 saying, The story of the dove made me think of the Spirit of the Most High tugging on my heart, speaking with kindness and humility to others, not having to argue your point, just telling others the message of the Most High. Thanks for your encouraging feedback. A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program, so if it's blessing you, friends, please join the support team. Faithful supporters like you keep this program on the air. Write me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.